From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. We're a left-wing show about ideas, about populism, and about the politics of academia. This is like a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. Remember how I said that the threat of the far right is going to need a smart left-wing response? Because the political center is just going to advocate for a 9-11-style security state approach, which inevitably will only backfire on us. Well, where's my Ricky from Trailer Park Boys button? What's the kind of person to say a toad so? But you know what? A toad so. A fucking a toad so. The security state is currently turning inward to a new domestic war on terror. They are getting new monies hand over fist to ramp up surveillance, intelligence gathering, and undercover stings. And just this week, The Intercept's Ken Klipperstein reported on leaked documents that show just how fuzzy their definition of terrorism and extremism really is. He reports on internal Navy training documents which conflate anarchists, socialists, and neo-Nazis. According to this question in the training document, they are all political terrorists. This follows other such conflations, like the 2020 Homeland Threat Assessment that also listed anarchists and environmentalists as a counterterrorism priority. Because, you know, on January 6th, there were a bunch of vegan commune dwellers who stormed the Capitol, right? Now, continuing with Ken's reporting, he also has a 2019 set of documents that talks about black identity extremists. Let me just quote. The document went on to describe a cryptic program codenamed Iron Fist, in which the FBI would use undercover employees and recruit confidential informants among black identity extremist groups. I will link Ken's indispensable reporting in the show notes. What is clear here is that the threat of right-wing extremism is being weaponized to justify enlarging the security state. And the security state has its eyes poised at the left, like they always have. Biden claims that his new approach will carefully safeguard our cherished civil liberties— But it was under his vice presidency that the unchecked powers of the security state only increased. So if you take his claims at face value, come on, man. Come on. Come on, folks. You might be thinking, these right-wing guys, they're frightening. They're a threat to our democracy. They have to be stopped. Yeah, for sure. But not on these terms. That's that's not how we have to do it. And anyways, it's not going to work. It didn't work last time. So please, I repeat what I said before. Don't fall for the hysteria. Don't let your honest and reasonable outrage make you a useful idiot for the security state. But I also repeat that the right wing is a threat and the left needs to understand it and respond to it. So this week, we will do that yet again. We begin two back-to-back episodes looking at different corners of the right. And we ask... What kind of state are they in, and exactly what do we need to do to counter them? Over two weeks, you'll hear debates about strategy and debates about political philosophy.
Next week, we're going to look at Canada and our country's response to the Proud Boys. This week, we focus our gaze across the pond to Europe, and in particular, France, where we have some electoral news. Marine Le Pen's far-right national rally disappointed in last weekend's regional elections. The early polling suggested that her party might actually win some regional seats. But the exit polls have them at second with 19% of the vote. That's worse than they did in 2015. But anti-fascist campaigners tell us to not let our guard down. So we try to figure out what's what. And we also scan the broader European right-wing landscape. We'll look at the writings of French philosopher Alain de Benoit. He is the godfather of this new identitarian right. They've influenced the far right across the globe, giving us such ideas as ethnopluralism. Many say that these ideas are just racism in new clothes, but French researcher Jean-Yves Camus doesn't. He says it's a bit more complicated than that. So we talked to him about how the far right has moderated their most extreme rhetoric and ask, is it real? Is it branding? Does it even matter? Alain de Benoit is just one kind of example of this new breed of far-right thinker. He's the kind of thinker that departs from the traditional small-c conservative, and he appropriates left-wing ideas. Ideas like Gramscian metapolitics, anti-capitalism, localism, even identity politics, but all for reactionary ends. So we get philosophical with Matt McManus. He is a left-wing political philosopher who calls this postmodern conservatism. We talk about what that means for the left and why the right seems to keep stealing our ideas. The conservative movement has always not been parasitic, but we're willing to draw upon the tropes of liberal and progressive activism where that seems effective. And the most spectacular example of that is actually with fascism, right? Uh, Fascism in some ways was the emergence of a hard right movement that was willing to compromise with the demands of mass society. But first, I speak with a researcher who tracks right-wing groups, often using undercover infiltrations. We get a status update on the far right, and we debate the ethics of these methods. You know, I've been watching a lot of soccer lately. Go Croatia! We won, I must say. We defeated the Scots in our last match from the group stage, and we advanced. In the spirit of footy, let's do a little darts and letters style Euro 2020. This is a competition, though, you don't want to win. But it is a competition that Europe seems to be having. The competition is for who is the most right-wing country in all of Europe. You already know it's not France. Their national rally party disappointed in the most recent regional elections. Is it Germany? 
The far-right alternative for Deutschland were poised to win in the most recent local state elections, but they didn't. They ended up second behind the Christian Democrats. So, bye-bye, you're out the group stage. What went wrong for the Germans tonight? They seem pretty, pretty flat and pretty tired out, if I'm honest. In previous matches, they've scored, you know, loads of goals. 4-1 to England, of course. 4-0 yeah. <laughs> over Argentina, how can we forget? You know, they, they seem to... Did they kind of peak too soon, or...? Is it the Netherlands? Party for Freedom, led by the infamous anti-immigration provocateur Geert Wilders, finished in third place in the 2021 elections. They only got 10.8% of the vote. That's down from 2017. So Netherlands, you're also out the group stage. You've just lost your luster. In Austria, the far-right Freedom Party of Austria is in third with 17% of the vote, slightly ahead of where they were in 2019, but down from where they were in 2017. So the inconsistent Austrian team gets knocked out. Better luck next year. In Sweden, the anti-immigration far-right party Swedish Democrats came in third in 2018, Recent polls have them taking upward, so they squeak through our group stage and the crowd goes wild. But they get dropped by Italy in the round of 16. Italy has a deep roster. Elections aren't going to be till probably around 2023, unless there's a snap election. But regardless, they've got the far-right Brothers of Italy, they've got the Lega Party, they've got the Five Star Movement, lots of right-wing talent on this deep Italian team. Belgium is surging. The far-right Flemish Interest Party took second place in spring 2019 elections, up big from last time. So Belgium blows past our group stage, but Finland bests them in the round of 16, because the far-right Finns party came in second place in 2019 elections, and they are currently polling first. So Finland's team of right-wing anti-immigration people is looking strong. <laughs> Our match to watch in the group of 16 is Spain versus Cyprus. You might not think of Cyprus, but they are kind of a dark horse in this tournament because they've got the neo-Nazi party, the National Popular Front. This party doubled its support in the most recent election, but in Spain, the far right remains strong. The Vox party has 16% of the vote, so... Bye-bye, Cyprus. Look out for them in the next tournament, though, because Cyprus has got a lot of young talent. Our deep Italian team knocks out Spain and the Vox party, and they go on to face Estonia. Estonia is also a surprising force in European far-right politics. The Estonian party EKRE won over 17% of the vote in the 2019 elections, and they are the third largest party. And importantly, the party was actually part of a government coalition. This caused massive consternation around the globe, but the EKRE fell due to a corruption scandal. So Italy advances and continues their historic run. 
haven't talked about Poland. Poland has so far been undefeated through this entire tournament. They are a consistent powerhouse. Their far-right Law and Justice Party is now serving its second consecutive majority government. They have 43.9% of the vote. The party combines nationalist anti-immigration politics with homophobia and collectivist economic policy. So even though Italy has some strong depth, they have nothing like this high-end neo-fascist talent. So Poland moves on to the finals to meet their regional rival, Hungary. Viktor Orban and the Fidesz party has had a parliamentary supermajority over the last three elections. And recently, emboldened by a new constitution, a stacked judiciary, and a dismantling of press freedoms, Hungary just can't be beat. They win it. Lovers in here. Oh, he's, he's done it. It's a goal to Hungary. Hungary, they are our Euro 2020 victor. Viktor Orban and the Hungarian team claim our mantle for most right-wing country in all of Europe. You did it. Our top contenders in this silly little game, Italy, Poland, and Hungary, the truth is, they're not really competitors. They're playing this game together. Because in April of this year, right-wingers from Poland, Hungary, and Italy met in Budapest. They are trying to form an alliance to boost their clout at the EU level. The three are creating a political platform that rails against soulless multiculturalism. They also want to stem immigration and defend the traditional family. But back to France. I know they got knocked out of the group stage, so why are we even talking about them? Well, even if electorally they are not a powerhouse, they intellectually certainly are. You might say that France is sort of the intellectual engine for far-right politics in Europe, perhaps across the globe. They've got some of the most heavyweight neo-fascist thinkers. So as a show about ideas, we have to turn to France. Joe Mulhall is a senior researcher of Hope Not Hate. That is the UK's largest anti-fascism organization, you may recall we had his colleague Patrick Hermanson on a previous episode. I checked in with Joe to get the skinny on what exactly happened in these most recent regional French elections. They polled less than they were expected to, about 27%. Now, in some senses, there's been a sigh of relief across Europe that people thought that for the first time, Le Pen was going to take over, or National Rally would take over a region of France, which would offer them a budget of billions. That didn't happen. So in, in that sense, it's good. But I do always get a bit tentative when you see these newspaper headlines, which are almost crowing with how unsuccessful Le Pen had been. Whereas if you actually put it in a bit of historical context and you go back 10, 15 years or, or 20 years, certainly, the idea that National Rally would be anywhere near, near these sorts of electoral results would be completely incomprehensible and terrifying. And the idea that Le Pen would be polling as she is now for the upcoming presidential elections would be incomprehensible. And I think is actually emblematic of where the European far right is, how normal it has become, how, how mainstream it has become 
And so it's not just France. I mean, if you look at, say, the Sweden Democrats in Sweden, uh, the AFD in Germany, again, a country that for decades people thought would never see a far-right party of that scale in parliamentary chambers around Germany. Uh, of course, you throw in Orban in Hungary, Law and Justice in Poland, Liga in Italy, Vox in Spain, you name it. We are having at this moment in the last decade or so where the European far-right and the European radical right has grown to the point where it is now in parliamentary chambers across the continent in a way that would probably be incomprehensible to people that are much older than us, uh, say, who were kind of campaigning maybe 20, 30 years ago, they'd be shocked if they heard about these results now. I'm curious about the French new right. It seems to be particularly influential and both across Europe and also infusing streams of the right here in North America. Tell me a bit about what characterizes the French new right and where is their influence? So, I mean, the French New Right, if we're thinking quite specifically about the Nouvelle Droite or, or more, even more specifically Greca, as it was called, or the Research uh -huh. and Study Group for European Civilization, this is a movement that emerges in France in the late 60s or specifically in Nice in 1968. And it's based around this far-right philosopher called Alain de Benoit. Basically, there was lots of debate. In some ways, this was a reaction to the, the generation or the 68ers, which caused Paris in 1968 or France was a, you know, a revolutionary moment, you know, where people were, you know, we had this left progressive student movements. And that wasn't just, of course, in Paris and France. This went around the world, this year of kind of rebellion from the left. And in some ways, the French New Right was a reaction to that. And it emerges, as I say, around de Benoit. And, and it's not a political party. It's a school of thought, really. It's a group, they set up uh, this Greca thing, they, they set up these think tanks, essentially, and they make newspapers and books, etc. And centuries, they talk of themselves as a school of thought, they talk of themselves as a community of spirit, a space of resistance against the system, a laboratory of ideas. They have all these very highfalutin kind of self-definitions, if you will. But essentially, they believe that they, they are anti-capitalist, they are anti-American, they have environmental positions, which for some people allows them to be painted as almost like a left-wing movement. In reality, of course, though, they are a fundamentally far-right movement that rejects modernity, they reject Christianity, they reject the, the values of the Enlightenment, and they hark back to this mythical European past that is pre-Christian. And um, in many ways, I think they fit very comfortably within the far-right or some academics would argue even within fascism, because they have these two elements that are central to, to fascism, which is they believe in a populist ultranationalism, and they believe in a national rebirth or palingenesis. One of the key central elements to their, their worldview, if you will, and this is what's really important, I think, that, that the legacy of these ideas that is really important right now, is they push a number of ideas. One is a thing called ethnopluralism. Ethnopluralism is essentially racial separatism, or what they would argue cultural separatism. Um, the idea that cultures and identities are unique and should be kept separate. And fundamentally, that is essentially a result of a rejection, if you will, of multiculturalism and immigration. So they are anti-immigration, they're anti-multicultural, and they believe that what you should have is unique and separate cultures. Uh, and these ideas, of course, become central to the identitarian movement. They're very influential within things like the alt-right as well. But yeah, so this school of thought emerges in the 60s, and then it spreads from France around Europe, and you get groups popping up all over Europe, and, and then also eventually around the world. It's fascinating how they appropriate left-wing rhetorics and ideas. And maybe one to begin is sort of the idea of metapolitics, the Gramscian, you know, the Italian Marxist figure, 
To what extent does the French New Right and De Benoit in particular, I mean, to what extent do they sort of fulsomely understand and embrace an idea like metapolitics? Well, one of the difficulties with De Benoit, especially him, not, not all of the people in the New Right, is that De Benoit is a real thinker. You know, I think you can call him a fascist, you can certainly call him far right, but he is a real thinker. And a lot of the people that have ascribed to his ideas and to the ideas of the new right are not. Uh, you couldn't say the same of them. But this isn't one of those elements of the far right where you can just write them off and say they're not thinkers, they have no ideas. When it comes to metapolitics, this idea that politics is downstream of culture, if you will, is that the way to to change the world is to to win over the public space, achieving cultural dominance with their right-wing ideas... They genuinely believe this. You know, if you look at the way they've operated through the last 50, 60 years now, it's about books, it's about think tanks, it's about magazines, it's about cultural events. They genuinely believe that they can capture the cultural space, they can achieve cultural dominance. And a lot of this is about essentially normalization. It's about putting forward ideas in ways that people can engage with. And this became really, really important for for numerous far-right movements. So I think it's... Some of the people in the new right, you can just say, like you would about most people on the extreme far right, these people are liars or they're just saying this, that, the other. With the Nouvelle Droite, when it thinks to like, I, I believe their, their belief in environmentalism. They, they believe it for very different reasons than I do. It's like a romantic uh, romanticization of the land, right? That particular land. Yes, it doesn't get very long before they, their, their definitions of environmentalism and ecology expand beyond just the environment and move into things like culture. Uh, and then it becomes actually about protecting cultural identity and, and there is this ethno-cultural identity the link between ethnicity and culture and the environment and and you know we know through history that there's that's not a huge amount of steps away from blood and soil so you know but there is that you know they are in, intrinsically anti-capitalist they are um for much of the european left you know the much of the european left is anti-american the nouvelle droit are certainly anti-american this is one of the big contradictions that I think a lot of the American adherents of de Benoit just seem to ignore. I think when you listen to a lot of, um, you know, the alt-right that say, oh, we love de Benoit and stuff, and they're saying, but he hates you. Um, so yeah, He's not a fan of hamburgers and hot dogs, right? Or, or uh, Hollywood. No, he's absolutely not. And, you know, and then but in some ways, a lot of the stuff he talked, the way they talk about America and the Nouvelle Droite sounds a lot like the Frankfurt School. It sounds yeah. like, you know, you know, Adorno and the, the way that they talk about America as well. So, there are these elements of, you know, to Benoit would argue that it's left and right or beyond left and right. Uh, in reality, I think it should be squarely situated within the far right or within fascism. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have these elements which are, and metapolitics is one of them, the way they do politics, they've clearly adopted from Gramsci and they've clearly adopted from kind of various left-wing politics. Okay, how directly can we draw a line from de Benoit and the French New Right more broadly to Le Pen? Well, it's a, it's a difficult question. If you look at a lot of the elements of new right thought, especially around things like ethno-pluralism or remigration or um, the great replacement theory, some of these central elements that are talked about within the philosophy of the new right, large elements of that you can see huge echoes of within Le Pen's platform. And uh, if you think about things like National Rally or, or the Front National, there was, of course, crossover links going back decades between people within the Front National going to various events held by the Nouvelle Droite, etc. So there is this legacy of crossover. But I think more interesting than that is the way that what the Nouvelle Droite has been successful at is sitting under the radar in some ways. They have done the intellectual legwork for all sorts of European far-right movements. So they've created the ideas, the ideology, the language, and those sorts of things. And I think a lot of the people that repeat those ideas don't necessarily know the debt that they owe to people like de Benoit and the New Right. And I think that's not just with Le Pen in France, but I think you see that 
around Europe. And I think you'll see it again with people in the alt-right. You know, I always think the number of people that have actually read De Benoit or Gilliam Fay or Champignon are, are relatively small, but they have an outsized influence in the sense that there are individuals that have read them and amplified those ideas through these movements. And I think kind of what you're seeing with Le Pen over the years is, is part of those things has been useful. This idea, for example, that Le Pen talks about localism, mm-hmm. you know, for Le Pen, uh, that's an important thing. Localism was always important to the Nouvelle Droit. You know, and so environmentalism, actually, Le Pen isn't like the AFD. They're not doing pro-diesel campaigns. They're actually talking about buying French, buying local. We need to protect our environments, etc. So some of those ideas, you know, whether or not there's a direct causal link or whether or not it's happening by osmosis, it's difficult to say, but I think there's an influence there. You've said a couple of times that these parties are trying to modernize at least their branding, I guess, but... Tell me a little bit about Le Pen, because, I mean, she's like purged or her father from the party, right? And tried to take a more centrist or neoliberal stance in some ways, at least publicly. What, where is that party right now? And you've also said a couple of times you think sort of in the background, they're not exactly as they present themselves. So what, what do you think they are in the background? This is the fundamental question, both with Le Pen, uh, but also all of the modernization programs, is, is how do you judge how earnest they were, how, how real they were. And of course, in different parties in Europe, it's to different extents. Le Pen and, and the party, uh, or the Front National, in some ways spearheaded this modernization program, uh, or they were the most successful. You know, her father was a Holocaust denier, an extreme anti-Semite, and the party was a fascist party. And its partner in the United Kingdom, the British National Party, was a fascist party. You know, and the parties that they linked up around, uh, you know, another example would be the Sweden Democrats, right? In Sweden, again, was a fascist neo-Nazi party. And all of these parties take the British National Party to one side for various reasons, but went on these programs where they understood, actually, that because of, for various reasons, including the the kind of anti-fascist consensus of the post-war period, realized that the way out of that ghetto that they had found themselves in was not going to be, for example, the traditional tactic for most of the post-war period was Holocaust denial. How do you resurrect the politics of fascism? You get rid of the biggest hurdle, which was the Holocaust, right? And and these parties realised that the traditional politics that they felt that they could win on especially around things like anti-Semitism, were not going to be a door back into the mainstream. And they start to look around for alternatives. And the Pen and the party uh, does this as well. And they start to talk about immigration. They start to talk about various different ethnic minority communities. And then, of course, post 9-11, they start to talk about Muslims uh, in, in much more concerted terms. This begs the question about what some people call the front of house, back of house, or esoteric, exoteric. For a number of these parties, the front-facing image was moderated, and a lot of their supporter base would have been much more moderate than that. But the remaining, the core of those parties essentially remained the same. They knew what the truth was, if you will. And it was like you could almost envisage it as like concentric circles. You know, the British National Party in the UK was a good example of this. There was 200 fascists at the centre of it, but hundreds of thousands of people voted for that party, most of which had no idea that the core leadership believed the Holocaust didn't happen and that there was a Jewish conspiracy. Le Pen's uh, and National Rally is... Another question. I think that, of course, the image that they project is much more moderate than the reality of their politics. They are continuously found, for example, with with links to things like the identitarian movement that have been exposed in recent years. And and people are regularly found for things like uh, racism. People are exposed for kind of outbursts, etc. There is still that latent politics of very far right politics in there, but they have a nice new logo. They've softened their rhetoric, etc. And it has worked for them, right? It has helped them enter the mainstream. 
why does the difference matter? I mean, in a certain sense, I don't really care what's in the heart of hearts of politicians. I mean, regardless of where they are politically, if they say that they've changed and they, they rally and mobilize and activate around a different set of issues, that is their politics. Even if they believe something and they're more, more morally reprehensible people, if that is not an organizing principle, why does it matter if there's a bit of branding versus what's, what's real? It's a great question. And the, the answer is democracy, right? Because the split between a fascist party and a non-fascist party is whether or not they believe in democracy. Mm -hmm. And of course, that then that makes a huge difference when they are in power. So, for example, if a party that, that wins power at its core remains fascist and it rejects the democratic no notions of democracy and the reality of democracy, in power they shut down democracy. If the party is, is, has moved away from that and has become a democratic, xenophobic democratic party, um, the ability to, say, vote them back out and all those sorts of things remains in place. So the question in terms of it remains important because if, for example, we think they're more moderate than they are and they win, first of all, there's a whole set of different tactics that would be justifiable against a fascist party versus a non-fascist party. But it also means that what happens when that person becomes president of a country, do they end democracy? Uh, in which case, that's a, obviously a different order of threat than if they are a xenophobic party that you can vote out. Next up, we get more into Joe's research methods, that is, undercover infiltration. I challenge his methods and we debate the ethics of this whole approach. When we see what the effect of some of these movements is, by any means necessary becomes more of a legitimate tactic in the sense that we've seen the gas chambers. I don't mean to go back to that all the time, but we've seen where fascism leads if it's mm -hmm. unchecked. And to me, any tactic we can employ which makes that less likely that stops it. That's after the break. Stay tuned. We need your support. If you like what we do, I want you to chip in. Please go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. I've said this many times. We believe that ideas matter. And so we're trying to nurture a left-wing intellectual space, but make that space accessible. And really, here's my very simple theory of politics. I think politics is basically two things. You need better ideas, ideas that are more persuasive, more effective, more understandable, more attractive, and actually in the material interest of voters. That's the first thing. Second thing is you need better organizing. You have to actually mobilize around those ideas and make them gain power. You have to have both. One without the other, you'll go nowhere. It's that simple. That is my theory of politics. What my theory of politics rejects is thinking that you can police your way out of bad politics, that you can censor your way out of bad politics, or that you can just ignore bad politics and hope that they go away. And that is why we are trying to engage these tough ideas, these dangerous ideas, and we're trying to bring together activists, scholars, opinion makers, and intellectuals of all stripes because we want to make sense of this. So if you support that, I want you to support us. We really appreciate our generous patrons, thanks to our two most recent ones, Navi and Ursula. By supporting our show, you help keep us going. So go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. Okay, back to Joe Mulhall and on to undercover infiltrations. How do you represent yourself when you infiltrate a group? This is undercover, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it depends. Yeah, of course, there's backstory. We, we create backstories. Um, there's only certain amounts we're allowed to talk about in terms of how we do it. But generally speaking, we create a false story and a, a false persona and we approach them and we we kind of work our way into the movement. And, and that really depends on in varying levels. Some of the groups in the UK I would do was, was you'd have really long stories that were very, you know, have to have complete online social media presences. Other ones, you just kind of, I would just turn up at a demonstration and kind of stand in the corner. So there was different levels there. But for us, the key was, it actually goes back to this conversation we just had about like front of house, back of house, right? Which is, if you want to work out whether or not what a political party or a far right organisation, whether or not what they're saying to the outside world is actually true, you have to be there when they think no one's listening. I guess I'm a little uncomfortable with this because I, I believe in a sense of like privacy and all political organisations, even mainstream ones, have a front of house and a back of house. And I worry about setting a kind of climate where, you know, myself, I might be sitting with my comrades talking about how eventually we need to have a revolution, or I might be sitting with some environmentalists thinking, you know what, we need to to mobilize uh, uh, a demonstration against this, and we're talking strategically. And I just feel like I wouldn't want that publicized, and I, I have that right to privacy, and of course, I'm not defending these groups, absolutely. If I pushed a button, I would want them to not be in our politics. But just on a sort of symmetry and like, what would I want done to me? I worry about this kind of strategy. I think there's lots of questions that, that, that are completely fair there, right? And I think that none of this should be broached in an unthinking way. And that it's just an obvious or easy answer. Because yeah, of course, uh, we do, we infringe people's privacy. And we set out to do these people harm, right? The idea is, is that we expose them, and that's going to cause them problems. You know, some people might lose their jobs. And the question is exactly right, is this legitimate? And I think the answer to that is, of course, it depends on what the group is and what that group's objectives are. Mm -hmm. One of the big debates around no platform more broadly, for example, but is, is fascism like any other ideology? Is fascism like environmentalism or socialism, etc.? Or does fascism offer a unique danger that when in power, as we've seen through history, can create such harm and such danger, but more importantly, its rise will suppress other people's rights? Does that make it legitimate for one to go in and do something which may infringe on their rights in the same way that, for example, should you know platform people? Not if you just disagree with them, but if you think that that person on a platform will shut down the rights of others, then actually that no platforming actually becomes a defense of freedom of speech. And in some ways, I think the things we do at Hope Not Hate and the things I talk about in the book is we take it extremely seriously. We don't just go around and do it because we're slightly interested. We do it when we think that the information that we will find will actually protect democracy or it will protect the rights of a minority community that's planning to be attacked. And we've got numerous examples in the last few years. We've had sources at Hope Not Hate inside far-right terror groups that have stopped people being murdered. And so the question then is about saying, actually, this is not an offensive tactic. It's actually a defensive tactic. It's about going in and trying to stop things that are going to happen, which are going to be bad. And so you're absolutely right. This shouldn't be taken lightly. And it's really interesting when I talk to people from North America, there's often a lot more reticence around it. I'm not sure if it's kind of the culture of the First Amendment. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's that we often get this interesting kind of tension. But I do think it's justifiable. And it's right for progressive movements to call us out if we get it wrong, yeah. if they think we've crossed the line and we've gone into movements that it's not justifiable in. Because we are doing, we're setting out to cause people harm. And the only way that's justifiable is if we're setting out to stop harm. 
I agree with you 100% that I do think fascism is a unique threat and perhaps it's justifiable. But I guess the point I'm, I'm trying to make is another right-wing group might make the very same argument about my politics. And, you know, just looking at the news in the past, like, week or so, the Biden administration sort of ever-expanding security state in the face of domestic terror. I saw a document just yesterday about how anti-capitalist anarchist activists would be monitored or animal rights activists would be monitored. And I guess there's just this, like, climate of a police state. And so I get my back up a little bit when even when left-wing people are doing essentially policing. That's kind of what I'm saying. And I'm just worried about where this strategy is going. The, the thing, of course, the matter of fact is that the states are undercover in environmental groups. The states are undercover in progressive and left-wing movements. And, you know, we've got a whole host of court cases going on in the United Kingdom at the moment where police were found to be, you know, sleeping with people in progressive movements over a number of years in long-term relationships, all sorts of yeah. horrific stuff that, that we would never do. But, you know, we have very strict rules in terms of what we're allowed to engage in. The difficulty is, is that in some ways this war is happening. Yeah, and it's, of course, nothing new. We might talk about increasing levels of police states, etc. But if you look through the history of anti-fascism, back to the 1920s and 30s, progressive or anti-fascist movements were infiltrating far-right groups. You know, if you look in the UK, back to the 20s and 30s, if you go through the papers that have now been released, you know, militant Jewish movements were infiltrating uh, the British Union of Fascists to try and protect the Jewish community. Uh, so the, this tactic that I'm talking about here is not new. There was a long history of it. And I understand what you're saying, but the, the, the alternative to that would be to say, okay, we're not going to do this, which would have zero effect in terms of stopping the state doing it on progressive movements or the environmental movement. And it would have zero effect on the far right not doing it in the sense that um, the far right movement have, have long infiltrated all sorts of things as well. So to me, it's about being really making sure the borders of this are clear, making sure the rules of this mm -hmm. are very clear and what you do and what you don't do and where you do go and you don't go and making sure that the objective always remains extremely clear. And it's not just like a blasé thing we do for fun. Mm. No, I don't think that's the alternative. I think the alternative is the other stuff your organization does, right? Like the education, the you talking to me right now, the political mobilization, the research. Like at the end of the day, I mean, what's going to stop these groups? From my perspective, there's really only two things, better ideas and better mobilization. Because I worry that these sort of infiltrations lead to more secrecy, more hardening, more resentment, and potentially more violence too. I mean, what is it going to ultimately accomplish to sort of like get into the back of these organizations versus just opposing them at the front and saying, no, we, we have this politics we're advocating for and we don't really care what's in your heart of hearts and we're gonna win on a different kind of politics. Because I think the two are linked, right? When you say, you know, so for example, the way that Hope Not Hate does its campaigning is, is the reason I think that Hope Not Hate's been so successful, for mm -hmm. example, in its campaigns against the BNP is we knew exactly where they were going to campaign. We knew exactly what they were planning in a community. We knew exactly how many leaflets they were printing, what was going to be on those leaflets, where they were going to print them, how many people they were going to have on their day of action that weekend. The way that we campaigned on the doorstep and the way we spoke to people, the, the people we spoke to on the doorstep had no idea about this other side of the work. Mm -hmm. But it meant that we were in the right communities, saying the right things, arguing about the right issues, because we knew what they were going to do before they did it publicly. Mm -hmm. and so it was a, about linking those two things. The, the infiltration work is about making the other sides of the work more effective. And, and the other thing element here is, yes, I mean, there's, there's specific examples like 
Uh, there was a plot, for example, kill a British MP that we, that we foiled or a colleague of mine foiled, and there was an undercover source there. That was just a basic thing is that we had the information that allowed to, to uh, stop an attack. And then the other thing is that when you say about what it does to the movements themselves, we notice in the UK, so much of the time of the movements that we monitor is spent hunting for informants. You know, they spend so much time talking about us, talking about the work we do, looking for uh, other people that might be spies. Searchlight, which was our parent organization that we came out of, there was a very famous source called Ray Hill. And he was put in a situation, for example, where he managed to maneuver himself into being the person that was looking for the leak. <laughs> and that allowed him to <laughs> play off both sides of this and, uh, you know, and, that, and, and split uh, entire far-right movements in the United Kingdom. So the more time they're shouting at us and they're worried about us, the less time they're shouting at Muslims on the street in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see your point. And I'm not trying to be all high and mighty. And I, I sort of do, no, I, I do get a kick out of it, but I, I go back to sort of my underlying Kantianism. Like you wouldn't want them doing the same thing to your organization. And like, if that's, if that's agree, the case, right? then why, why apply that tactic to other organizations? Because it invites them to do the same thing to me. It invites them to do the same thing to you. It just seemed like that's not really the train of politics. That's the train of policing. It's a, it's a, I would say it's a train of winning. Right? Or, and, like, <laughs> and, 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 the, the issue, and the thing here is, um, this is about saying by any means necessary. A lot of the arguments you're saying, I, I, I empathize with deeply, right? And, and there may be times where people have crossed the line or I've crossed the line and those things are, you know, and those things should be called out. However, when we see what the effect of some of these movements is, by any means necessary becomes more of a legitimate tactic in the sense that if we were sit here and take a Kantian approach and say, and say around that, we've seen the gas chambers, right? We've seen the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And I don't mean to go back to that all the time, uh, but we've seen where fascism leads if it's mm-hmm. unchecked. And to me, any tactic we can employ, which makes that less likely, that stops it. Now, does it mean that they can will try to do it to us? Yes, it does. And, and I mean, this is the problem is that you end up into this arms race. And, and the key then is, are you better at it? The aim has to be to make sure you're better at it. Otherwise, you're going to lose. You know, do you open it? Do you start a game that you're going to lose? Uh, and that's a, a debate to be had. But I think a lot of the questions you're asking are right. And I don't think they're asked enough. And I think there's most of the media coverage we get, for example, will be it's just exciting, right? And from, from them, it's an exciting thing. And so they don't, they don't deal with those sorts of questions. But I do think as long as it's done in the most moral way that is possible, if you can lie in a moral way, I guess this is, maybe this is turning into a philosophy podcast. But... <laughs> yeah, what kind of is in some way. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think as long as you do it within parameters in terms of that and, and you have clear objectives and the like, then I think the... Uh, I was about to say the means justify the ends, but then that would probably be clip, <laughs> clipped out of context. Um, but yeah, so I think it's an important one. I think that the outcomes that we've found from it have been successful enough and useful enough that I think we can continue to justify it. If, for example, we were just doing it for newspaper stories for Vice News, I wouldn't think it was justifiable. But we've got concrete examples of where we have stopped terrible things happening to ethnic minority communities, etc. And it has been invaluable for our fight on the doorstep in communities with leafleting community events, etc. It shouldn't be fetishized, but it is understood as a resource and a tool that is used in a broader fight. That was Joe Mulhall, senior researcher at the anti-fascist group Hope Not Hate. Joe's upcoming book is called Drums in the Distance, Journeys into the Global Far Right. You can get it July 8th.
Jean-Yves Camus is director of the Observatoire de Radicalique Politique and associate fellow at the Institut de Relations Internationales et Stratégiques. You know what? Never mind. My Canadian French grade school training just did not prepare me for this, but I digress. All you really need to know is that Jean is a political scientist and expert in European far-right politics, and in particular, he looks at French politics. I called him up to get a little intellectual profile of this man, Alain de Benoit. Alain de Benoit is like the godfather of the French New Right, and Jean-Yves actually knows the guy. De Benoit, when he was young, uh, back in the 1960s, was certainly much of a radical, and he does not deny that. But uh, for reasons that have to do with his ego, the only thing he wishes is to remain as a philosopher. He has no academic background, but he really wants that his memory be that of a philosopher with a lot of books and some kind of intellectual influence. For this reason, he slowly but quite surely drifted away from activism and street politics, street action, and tried to establish himself as a respectable intellectual, as a journalist, as a writer, as a theoretician. And I'm not that sure that today, uh, De Benoit will turn 78 at the end of this year, I'm not that sure that De Benoit still believes in the supremacy of the white race. He believes in certainly in the need for it, each and every culture to keep quite separate from the others so that miscegenation uh, is something that is certainly wrong, according to him. But uh, uh, my personal belief, and I've met the man many times over the years, is that he's quite happy with a society in which the native or so-called native French people would succeed in uh, keeping their values and their traditions as long as the other people from other descents do not, uh, I would say, uh, are not an obstacle to, to, to this. As long as they will not stand in the way of, of the native people and let, let them live according to their values, uh, he does not want to uh, to chase them away. Mm. One very important thing, I mean, one very interesting thing, is that, in fact, De Benoit lives in a very multicultural neighborhood of Paris. He's not your kind of man who would say, oh, I do not want to live next door to, uh, to, to a man from West Africa or North Africa. Uh, he lives in a, in a neighborhood which happens to be mine. And, uh, I mean, we have a, a huge... Chinese community, we have a huge Jewish community to which I belong. We have a huge African, West African community, and he's very happy with that, as long as the minorities do not stand in his way and uh, do not ask him to go and live elsewhere. What is he like in person? He's a very amicable man. Uh, he lives in uh, an apartment where books certainly go up in parts from the bottom to the top of the other room. There are thousands and thousands of books in his apartment, and he's known to uh, own another home in the countryside, which he says is the uh, 
biggest private library in Europe with 250,000 books. I've not seen his entire uh, private library, but I can attest that he really owns so many books and documents, very rare documents, on all kinds of uh, ideologies, including a sizable Marxist and, and leftist pile of documents from the uh, very fringe movements of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, he mostly has an interest in philosophy. Uh, he reads, French, of course, French and English, Italian and German, uh, to the best of my knowledge. He's a man who travels quite a lot, maybe a little less as he uh, gets older, but he uses to spend uh, quite a few weeks here in Italy where he's often invited in universities, which is not the case here in France. In France, he's still still seen as an extreme right intellectual. In Italy, uh, he's seen as a more mainstream. I sense an odd kind of respect that you have for him as an intellect. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, uh, yes. Yes. First of all, because uh, there are not so many people from his side of the political spectrum to answer questions from people on the other side, because I really stand on the other side as a social democrat. There are not so many people who accept answering all questions, and who accept to have a conversation on topics we do not always and do not most of the time agree on. Uh, it's quite open-minded. And on the other end, I read his books, and uh, I find them quite interesting, quite challenging, especially given the fact that the French right is intellectually totally dead, they are brain dead. I mean, there's nothing of any interest that comes out of a mainstream conservative parties in France. Uh, we have some, I would say, uh, right-wing Catholic traditionalist intellectuals of some significance and interest, but the Benoit really stands uh, pretty much alone in the... Uh, landscape of the intellectual right as a man who has written more than 100 books. I mean, it, uh, it's not a goal to, to write 100 <laughs> books in a lifetime. But it, it, it happens that quite a lot of his books are interesting, uh, even when you disagree totally with them. At least you have an intellectual corpus that you can rely on and which enables you to understand what has changed within the radical right over the last 50 years. How he has changed from being a street activist to uh, being uh, an intellectual, or at least pretending to be an intellectual. How did the uh, radical right shift from outspoken racism white suprematism to this idea that in fact there is no superior race but only people with their own specific culture that cannot and should not mix with other cultures. This idea that you have 
to uh, stay true to your forebears and to your roots and keep your customs and your tradition. And that, in fact, globalization is a bad idea, not only because it gives excessive power to uh, multinational companies and, and free market economy, but because there is no such thing as equality between people. There are only differences. This emphasis on differences is something that is really key to understanding the change from the neo-fascist extreme right of the 1960s, 70s to what it is now. And this is, I, I think, a key explanation why the radical right in many countries has succeeded in getting votes in national elections because they say, well, we are saying to be racist and we are saying to be extreme. We are not. We do not say that the white man is superior. We just say that the white man also has his own right to be true to his roots and his ancestry and that race mixing is maybe not a good thing. <laughs> I guess for me, the question is like, what's the functional difference? Like, you're talking about a person who rails against miscegenation and a person who doesn't want race mixing and like values ethnic pluralism and identitarianism, even if it's not sort of overtly racist. I mean, functionally, we live in a pluralistic, multicultural, globalized society, and to go back seems to require a kind of racial hatred. It seems to require removing people. That just seems like a short hop skip to fascism, to traditional fascism. I mean, like this idea that cultures and traditions are are fundamentally separate and irreconcilable. That sounds all, first of all, dangerous to me, what the consequences of that might be politically. But it doesn't sound all that different. I don't fully understand if he says, okay, well, I'm not overtly a racist. I don't think we're actually better, but we're just completely separate and reconcilable. I mean, are we splitting hairs at this point? The big difference is that uh, your traditional fascist and your traditional national socialist does not only want to keep foreign people away from him, he wants mm -hmm. to exterminate them. And that's a very, very big difference. Le Benoit does not want to exterminate people from different religions or different backgrounds. He wants them to live their own life, maybe in another country in what uh, most of the people on the, on the radical right says are the so-called native countries, while most of them are born in France. But especially given what we have seen, what we have witnessed in the 1930s and during World War II, the big difference to me is violence and extermination. I take your point. I mean, that's clearly a difference, but I guess I'm still, to harp on it a little bit, I just don't see functionally how different it is. I mean he may not advocate for expelling minority groups from France, but it seems to me like an, a natural outgrowth. I mean, if you don't believe in cosmopolitanism, if you don't believe in globalism, if you don't believe in those things and believe French, France should be for the French, I mean, ultimately, doesn't that necessitate sort of removing people? Like, 
I mean, <laughs> there are biracial uh, communities. I mean, he lives in one. What do you, what do, you do about that? Well, his motto is actually not France to the French. That's the motto of the most extreme neo-fascist uh, right. Mm. De Benoit's motto is that he's very, very much opposed to free market economy and to liberalism in the classical sense of the, of the term. Because he, sees, he, he thinks that uh, liberalism atomizes society. When you are liberal, he says, you only care about your own business. You only care about your own good. And on not, you're not interested in uh, superior values, ethics, what life is about, what is the meaning of life. You only care about money, material, materialistic values. I think what is certainly his motto is he really despises anything that is materialistic. Mm. And in fact, if you look at his lifestyle, uh, I mean, he, he, he's not lavish, he's, he, he's not pushy. He, he lives in a lower middle class neighborhood and uh, looks like your average French man. So the difference between him and me, because I also believe that believing in nothing but capitalism and materialism is a completely hollow political identity and leads one to meaninglessness and atomization. But I'm not going to, in its place, suggest that we have to return to cultural, tribal, spiritual, or racial identities, but, but a universal project of human uplift. That's the point. The difference between, well, you and me on one side and the Benoit on the other side is that I think we both believe in the unicity of the human race and in universalism. And he does not. That was researcher Jean-Yves Camus. Check out his most recent book, Far-Right Politics in Europe. There are also some other shorter readings in the show notes. The far right is kind of strange. It's such an odd collection of people that somehow kind of holds together. You've got the right libertarians, you know, like the really small government people. We all know them. They're, they're kind of easy to understand. More recently, you've got the surge of right populism, which sort of rejects the small government politics of the right libertarians. Then there's the evangelicals, of course, that's a huge voting base. But there's also these atheist alt-right online weirdos who are mostly pagans, and somehow they kind of get along, or they at least go in the same tent. Then you've got these identitarian, anti-capitalist weirdos. We've talked a little bit about them on the show before. It's a strange new breed. And I was looking for a term to try and describe this, because it's certainly not classical conservatism. Not at all. It's not really fascism either, or if it is, it's like a kind of neo-fascism. Whatever it is, it is something different. Political philosopher Matt McManus has a name for it. He calls it postmodern conservatism. I found that really, really helpful. So I called up Matt and I asked him, what is postmodern conservatism? I'll give you the three-sentence answer, right? 
Uh, the first one is that postmodern conservatism uh, is the kind of reactionary politics that emerges in a postmodern setting or landscape. Uh, the second is that it tends to be defined by an epistemic skepticism uh, towards rationalistic authority figures, uh, particularly those that don't align with their ideological worldview. And third, this skepticism often cashes itself out as a reactionary identity politics uh, that's focused on excluding rationalistic elites and their alleged allies from political participation in the way that a liberal society would typically feel was very important. Tell me a little bit more sort of culturally, what, what is the, the cultural condition of postmodernism? What does that look like if you have a, you know, something in mind as a, as a concrete example? I tend to argue what defines postmodernity is the sense that there is no historical future available to us. Uh, so the time consciousness of postmodernity, as it were, uh, becomes highly phenomenological in the sense that we focus more on how we can f develop structures of meaning uh, that are individuated and significant to us rather than horizons of meaning that are historical and have significance to all of us, right? The collective demos, as it were. It's like a rejection of like universalist politics, ideas of like truth, or even a kind of like spiritual yearning for like a higher power or, or greater good or something like that. Is that kind of where you're leaning towards? Like a meaninglessness, right? That's exactly right. And again, I don't necessarily see this as uninhibitedly bad, right? The way that I define postmodern conservatism, though, is that it's the nostalgic appropriation of identities that used to be seen as powerful figures or, or as operating in positions of power, typically by figures who feel that they've been left out of society, not because they've been marginalized, but because they're entitled to those positions of power. Uh, those have now been denied them by the political left and liberals. And what's necessary is a turn to a kind of strong man figure. And it's almost always a man. I think that's quite significant, right? Uh, in order to restore the group that postmodern conservatives identify with to a, their position of prominence, their deserved position of prominence, as it were. So I'm thinking like, a small government pro, like like maybe evangelical, might be a classic conservative. If you're talking to a postmodern conservative, what are some of the things that they're that they're saying to you? How do you know? One of the things that's defi that defines postmodern conservatism, uh, as opposed to something like classical literal uh, iterations of conservatism, which were very popular in the United States uh, up until the 2010s, I would argue, is this deep distrust uh, of rationalistic sources of epistemic authority. And there are deep roots to this kind of thinking in the conservative tradition, which is something I try to foreground in my book. This didn't come out of nowhere, right? Uh, you can look at somebody like Edmund Burke or Joseph de Maistre, Robert Bork. All of them look at the Enlightenment with suspicion or outright hostility uh, because they see this as undermining support for a higher kind of epistemic authority, uh, that embodied by tradition, that embodied by religion, that embodied by the order that comes from a sense of identity with other people. Uh, and so it's to be rejected. And I argue that postmodern conservatism today is very similar in its rejection of these kind of rationalistic epistemic authorities. What differentiates it, though, from these earlier variants of conservatism is the selectivity of its skepticism and also its willingness to use many of the same hypermodern tropes of postmodernity in order to advance its own political positions. One of the things that you see that's emblematic of postmodern conservatives is this skepticism of liberal forms of identity politics, the politics of inclusion, as it were. They say, you know, this represents a kind of nihilism and a skepticism and uh, a kind of rejection of our most important values, right? But on the other hand, they're also willing to be skeptical of 
the epistemic authority of liberalism, and they usually are willing to do so on behalf of a different kind of identity, right? For instance, the yearning for a shared homogenous religious identity. And the way that they express support for that is usually using hyper-modern mediums or, or hyper-real mediums, things like Twitter, Reddit, where the way this identity is understood is invariably nostalgically, which is, again, another definitively postmodern characteristic. There's never this sense that the, uh, this identity is something that's stable, permanent, and enduring right now. It's something that's been lost, and it needs to be recovered. And the only way to recover it successfully is usually by breaking from the strictures of liberal politics and putting our faith in somebody who's going to be more militant and more aggressive in fighting for the restoration of this kind of nostalgic sense of identity. Uh, and the kind of identities that postmodern conservatives will appeal to, again, vary quite widely. The most popular ones that I describe in the book are religious senses of identity, masculine sense of identity, heterosexual senses of identity, and in very extreme, well, not very extreme, in quite extreme cases, because there are a lot of these now, racial and ethnic senses of identity. One of the things, you know, you, you talk about kind of like the ambivalence around identity, right? Because they don't accept the liberal version of identity politics. And there seems to be, I mean, you look online now, it's like everything every conservative is, ta is talking about is how critical race theory is like the end of humanity. How does that figure into the story? Does the postmodern conservative actually hate like left-wing identity politics? They do. And the reason is that traditionally speaking, the kind of left-wing identity politics that emerged, what David Harvey calls militant particularism, were oriented about cha around challenging existing structures of power on the basis of demands for inclusion. So you think about, for instance, LGBTQ politics uh, or feminist politics, something I'm particularly passionate about, right? Uh, the idea there was we have a group that's long been excluded from participation in liberal societies, and we need to change things fundamentally in order to ensure that these groups are included on the basis of, at the very minimum, formal equality. Postmodern conservatism isn't about that, right? It is a kind of identity politics in the same way, uh, but the identity politics that it advocated for was never on the basis uh, of a demand for inclusion and certainly not on the basis of a demand for equality, right? Most often the kind of form it took and the justification for it was, in fact, we once occupied positions of privilege and status and importance in the world, right? It's these groups that demand inclusion and equality that are actually the problem because they've now undermined this privilege and this status. And what we need is to get that back. Our sense of this identity is so wrapped up in those privileges and status that without them, they can't be stabilized any longer. I can't live in a United States of America as an evangelical Christian, where evangelical Christianity or some form of Christianity at the very least isn't the predominant religion. I can't live in the United States of America uh, where women are considered equal competitors with men and whose opinion might be venerated just as much as mine is, right? Because my sense of identity is built into at least a kind of superiority uh, to the opposite sex. So I'm curious about what to make of this um, as leftists. Like if, if they are appropriating or ideas or ideas that look a little bit like leftist ideas, does that mean we have to reevaluate our ideas or stick to our guns because they're just going to use whatever they can? The conservative movement has always not been parasitic, but we're willing to draw upon the tropes 
uh, of liberal and progressive activism where that seems effective. And the most spectacular example of that is actually with fascism, right? Uh, fascism in some ways was the emergence of a hard right movement that was willing to compromise with the demands of mass society and mass politics uh, as it was emerging in the early 20th century, right? A lot of the conservative movements in the 19th century were extremely wary or hostile to the very idea of a mass politics, which they saw as inevitably associated with revolutionary uprisings. And with fascism, what a lot of people on the political right realize is that you could have a mass ultra-conservative or ultra-right kind of movement that had strong support on the ground, that was militant, and that at least adopted the trappings uh, of a kind of revolutionary change. That was also attractive to people who were discontented uh, with the status quo, wanted a revolution, but wanted effectively a conservative revolution. So again, and they're just manifold examples of this, right? So if as leftists, we just decided that we're going to start responding every time the political right appropriates some of our rhetoric or some of our tactics by dropping them, we're not going to be in business for very long because they've been doing this forever and they're always going to do that whenever we happen to be successful, right? Now, saying that, uh, I think there are some instances where there are left-wing styles and rhetorics that have ceased to prove effective in relation to postmodern conservatism. And those, I think, should be dropped, right? Two of the ones that I discuss in the book is... There's this kind of enlightenment idea that you see espoused by people like Steven Pinker, right? That the way to respond to somebody like Trump uh, is essentially just to fact check him relentlessly and mm. endlessly. And I understand the temptation to do that, particularly post-COVID, right? But the reality is that this demonstrated that people didn't understand the appeal of something like Trumpism, uh, which wasn't about speaking tr the truth. Uh, and Trump made this very clear uh, in The Art of the Deal, or as Ghostwriter did, uh, where he said, you know, I engage in truthful hyperbole. It's kind of innocuous form of lying uh, that allows people to project their imagination into something that's bigger than themselves. Uh, and Trump was actually very successful about that in the sense that postmodern conservatives were attracted to him because he seemed to embody a higher kind of true truth, a fantasia into which they could project their, their ideas of what a better society would look like. Uh, and they didn't really much care that a lot of what he said wasn't literally true because it was spiritually or transcendently true. Well, what do you think has been the draw of like the foot soldiers, the, the rank and file uh, postmodern conservative, if there is such a thing? I mean, what are the material conditions that bring people like what appeals for people with these ideologies? I think that there are a huge number of things that are appealing about them, and it really depends on the personality. Some people, particularly young people, I think, were attracted to it because they saw postmodern conservatism uh, as kind of paradoxically almost embodying a punk ethos, right? And you saw Paul mm. Joseph Watson, an emblematic postmodern conservative, if ever there was one, uh, embody this where he said that stupid phrase, conservatism is the new counterculture, right? You know, nothing sticks it to the man more than, you know, billionaires and respect for the police or something. And a lot of people were puzzled as to how this could possibly be taken seriously. And it is ridiculous, right? It's completely stupid. Uh, but the reason why this was appealing is there is this kind of liberal idea uh, of what progressivism is, which is highly moralistic, deeply opposed to any kind of structural change, and that sees various forms of symbolic politics as more important than real politics. And to people who are dissatisfied with that, uh, somebody like Trump or Watson, who seems willing to say things that are offensive and brutal and mean and frankly just stupid, can almost come as refreshing, mm. uh, even if the substance of what they're saying is complete nonsense. So I think a lot of younger postmodern conservatives were attracted to this kind of idea.
for older people who are attracted to postmodern conservatism, one of the appeals was this notion that liberalism had gone too far, right? Uh, it had gone too far in creating a society that was permissive, decadent, allowed people to do whatever it is that they wanted. And there was this deep anxiety, again, about losing status relative to other groups that they felt really deep down were undeserving. And some of these people were, from the very get-go, willing to embrace any kind of solution, including authoritarian solutions, uh, if it was necessary to counteract these trends. So I'm really hopeful that a, that a universalist politics kind of like cuts out all the energy of these various movements and actually improves the material conditions of people such that they don't have to resort to these sorts of ideologies. Um, but just to play devil's advocate, the, the things that you just said to me, none of those were related to you know, access to healthcare or education or poverty or any of these things are still like psychic wounds of the old conservatives or just sort of a punk rock ethos of the young ones. So how how would kind of like a universalist politics appeal to that? Well, I, I think that there are two things to what you say, right? One is that I think it is absolutely necessary to foreground uh, materialist analysis uh, and materialist policies to try to appeal to people in a very concrete way. But I don't think that this can be done uh, in some kind of pretentious uh, or classical fashion uh, where we just say things like, well, you know, the rich are screwing you over and, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to provide you with, you know, all these kinds of public services. Uh, I think that the appeal of this kind of politics symbolically isn't as strong as it used to be, even though it would actually make a very concrete difference uh, in people's lives. Uh, and the reason I think that it doesn't have the kind of resonance it once did uh, is because of what Wendy Brown talks about very, very skillfully in her book on doing the most. It's because people feel, want to not just be the beneficiaries of policies, right? They want to be participants in their community, right? They want to be participants in politics. And I think the big reason why something like Trumpism appealed uh, was precisely because, for some people at least, it was an attack on a neoliberal consensus that was adamantly anti-political uh, and didn't have much space for citizen involvement. Right. For some people, sticking it to the man via Trump uh, was better than not sticking it to him at all. Uh, and so I think what we need to do in order to capture uh, this, I don't even want to call it symbolic, uh, this participatory dimension to politics that people yearn for uh, is by being genuine Democrats, saying, right, unlike these kind of postmodern conservatives uh, who talk a big game about speaking from the people but then go and disenfranchise millions of them when they get the chance, we really want you to have a say in your community. We want things like direct democracy. We want things like voting on constitutions rather than allowing judges to determine you know, how their constitutions can be rooted. We want things like higher levels of inclusion uh, for people who haven't been heard for a long time, including trade unions especially. You know? uh, and... I think that people like AOC, for example, really speak to that. Uh, since she's responsive to her constituencies, uh, she frequently foregrounds local politics. She appeals to a lot of youth by coming across as down-to-earth and fun and interesting. And I hope that other people tend to follow that example. And she was very militant, I should say, in demanding uh, higher levels of democratization. And I'm hoping that other people will follow her example in the future. If I have you right, basically what you're saying is like, you know, just giving people their pablum or like a generous enough UBI to sustain people, but but also sustaining a society in which there's no no such thing as meaningful political participation or people don't really have control over, over their uh, the political destinies of themselves and their communities is still going to be alienating, even if sufficient for them to like have a life and reproduce. It's still not going to be enough, which that totally resonates with me because I feel like a lot of... Um, 
a lot of sort of the end of the history period, it's kind of like dehumanizing because political, going right back to the start of our conversation, no need for political philosophy, right? No need for political theory. There is no alternative. There is no future. And then suddenly you're presented with an alternative and you're presented with political philosophies, even if they're sort of incoherent, but, but they are an alternative. I wonder how much of it is just that. It's just that people with these uh, postmodern conservatism are given an option for the first time. I think a huge part of it is that, right? I mean, there's a National Review article in October 2020 where they describe Donald Trump as the only middle figure available uh, to the elite media class. I think what we need to do as leftists is say, we shouldn't have a politics that's about sticking the middle figure to global elites, even if that should be part of it. You know, And I like punk as much as the next person, right? <laughs> I think we need to have a politics that's highly democratic, very participatory, and that actually takes power away from those groups uh, once and for all and puts it back in the hands of everything from local communities to traditionally marginalized groups. Uh, and to use Brown's phrase, reconstructs the demos, if it's ever existed. And I think that's a really inspiring politics for the future that's very different than the kind of welfareist programs you saw advanced in the 1940s forward. I think that there was a ton of good that these programs did. And I think that there's a reason why it is that things like healthcare, once it becomes a public good, have never been touched even by the most conservative governments. But I think there was the sense that, you know, these classical welfareist programs were very much advanced from the top down by technical democratic socialist uh, experts uh, who felt they knew what they were doing and were actually quite wary of granting the public too much of a say uh, in case they kind of shifted society in the right direction. Uh, And... We know what happened, you know, Ronald Reagan came to power, Margaret Thatcher came to power, both promising to sing to stick it to the welfare elites and their allies, you know, at the very bottom. The contemporary left can't afford to do that again. We need to create a demos that's going to be a mass base of support from here down through the century. That was political philosopher Matt McManus. He teaches at Whitman College, and he podcasts at PillPod. You should also check out his book, What is Postmodern Conservatism? from Zero Books. I'll link that and more on the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Cober. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our lead research assistant on this episode was Tim Burke from the University of Toronto. As always, David Mosscrop provides research support and writes the show notes. Ian Soudon is our marketing assistant. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I am your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters, and a retweet helps too. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Thanks to our two new patrons, Navi and Ursula. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants. This was part of a project looking at the rise of right-wing political philosophies. The advisors on that project are Andre Gagné, Ronald Beener, and A. James McAdams. The lead research assistants are Tim Burke and Isabel Lemelin. Next week, we have another episode in this series, this one looking at the Canadian right and debates over surveillance and the security state. Check back in next Friday.